welcome to Paradigms on WBKM. This is episode number 137, Sunday, February 3rd, 2013. Good evening. My name is Baruch. I'm your host on Paradigms. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. We've got some great guests and wonderful music for you tonight. We're going to start out by meeting Brian, who is a street medic and a trainer of street medics. And we're going to hear a little bit about the street medic movement and talk with one of the folks who attended the training Brian taught in Burlington, Vermont last week. So that will be very interesting. I also promised to tell you about my trip to Jamaica, where I spent two weeks with Prophet Ashante, who is a bush doctor and a nanny maroon. He's been on Paradigms. He's a friend of Paradigms. So I'm going to tell you about my visit with Prophet and his partner Maya and uh, just what a great time I had and some of the stuff I learned. And then we're going to meet a wonderful musician named Emily Baker, who is from the UK. She's just put out her second album called All at Sea. So we're going to hear some of Emily's music and talk with her about music. And I think you'll find it a great show. I hope you find it interesting. So let's get into the first part of my conversation with street medic Brian. I'm here with Brian, who's from Wisconsin, visiting Burlington, Vermont, teaching some folks to be street medics. Brian, what's what's this all about? The street medic movement is a, a movement that was born out of the civil rights movement and the anti-war protests of the, the 60s. It started out as a group of professionals providing care in protest situations and as, as uh, time progressed and, and the need for care at mass protests died out during the late 70s and 80s, some of these tools fell into disuse or very few people used them. And then in 99 at WTO, one of the old guard from the 60s, Doc Rosen, was asked to teach a training for some people in uh, Seattle. And so then, then the movement began to grow again. And for the past decade and change, these 20-hour street medic classes have been going on all around the country. And it's a basic first aid class that includes, we call it basic first aid in unstable situations. And so it's basic first aid, but practiced when we don't assume that we have EMS within a certain time frame. So how to stabilize patients as well and how to do evacuations. And, um, yeah. So you said these are happening all over the country. Yep. That means there's lots of folks involved. Very many. How many would you guess? 500 at least. It's probably, there's probably 10,000 people that have gone through a street medic training in the past decade. Wow. I would guess. But people actively participating on a, you know, maybe monthly basis, maybe 500, 400, somewhere in there. So folks are getting trained to provide emergency medical treatment at actions, at protests, and 
Um, are these folks providing medical care in any other situations too? Some people are. We teach, I teach, <clears throat> and other people teach what we call a bridge training, which is for people who have professional training but want to learn the toolkit for operating in unstable situations. So that's a you know a three three to four hour workshop that focuses on consent and practicing consent with different populations, and then how to move in these unstable situations. So working with a buddy or a team in the street, packing so that one can provide the correct type of care as opposed to you know having IV equipment in a mass protest, which is not particularly useful. So it's not just just uh, people who are untrained. And of course, these, these professionals bring some of our ethic and some of our, our practice back to their conventional practice with them and, and you know, use those tools and, and kind of have a, um, a more holistic way of relating to the patient. It's like a foundation for us is kind of the ethic of how we treat the patient. That's why I spoke about consent earlier. One part of how we di differentiate ourselves from the medical infrastructure is that we try not to approach our patients as though they are individuals who need to be told what to do. So some folks might have a concern about the degree of qualification. You know, people sure. really are concerned about does their doctor know what they're doing and you all aren't yep. mostly not even doctors so very much what's the what do you say to that well we have a in the medical field we talk about scope of practice and so in any given situation we are only going to practice to the edge of our scope so we're not going to do things outside of that boundary and during this 20-hour training we're just very clear about what exactly the scope of practice is and we also talk about or at least I as a trainer, try to talk about what can happen when we practice outside of our scope of practice because there are plenty of examples from the unconventional medical field and the conventional of people practicing outside of their scope and the horrible things that can happen. So um, we try to talk about very clearly having these boundaries and knowing when the work that we are being asked to do is beyond our capacity and how to solicit help in those situations um, and what our responsibility is while that help is arriving. So this isn't just about a bunch of kids playing doctor in the street? Most definitely not. Another question I can imagine people having is, why is this necessary? This is the United States. We have the most advanced, or at least most people think we have the most advanced medical establishment in the world. We actually don't, but we, we're up there. Why is this necessary? For example, if there's a, if there's a uh, a gunfight on the street in a major city, EMS is not going to respond to an injury until that scene, until that physical location is secured by the police. Similarly, in a mass protest, EMS is not typically going to respond until the police have determined that the scene is safe. This is a, a means of protecting oneself um, so that the EMS personnel don't become patients. But that means that protesters are without care. Different collectives around the country are made up of different providers. It's interesting to hear about different kinds of medical practice and to know that there is this underground 
of medical practitioners, both formally trained and informally trained, providing health care in the United States because, as we know, health care is expensive. Not everyone can afford it. And some people believe that health care should be available free to everyone as a right. So we will hear more from Brian, but here's a song about acupuncture.
All right, that was the P-Funk All-Stars from their CD, Hydraulic Funk with Acupuncture. Here is the second part of my conversation with Brian. I know people all over the country who are involved with the street bike movement who have different credentials, people who, are, who have no medical, professional medical training, people who have basic life support CPR certification, and, and doctors, nurses, phlebotomists, doctors of oriental medicine, chiropractors, massage therapists, uh, herbalists, all kinds of people with different experiences. And everyone brings a different piece of the puzzle to the street. And most of the time, people who do have significant professional credentials, doctors or nurses, kind of know what they're capable of treating and and dealing with in the street. And so they as well um, only kind of carry the gear that they feel safe using. That's something that we talk about in the bridge training, how to feel safe and ways to set oneself up for success in that environment. And that's part of the material is what supplies to take. How is the street medic movement, I guess, uh, connected with the free clinic movement in this country? In Wisconsin, we've done street clinics, uh, free clinics on the street with food, free meal programs for the homeless. I know that there are other groups around the country who have done that. Many times people become involved through these sort of spontaneous activities and then, you know, it'll blossom into some sort of stable piece of medical infrastructure for the community. Um, there are a number of long-term clinics operating around the country who kind of came out of that movement. <clears throat> One that I have experience with is Common Ground in New Orleans, which was a free clinic started by street medics in post-Katrina New Orleans and is still functioning at a high level eight years later and an active, very active participant in the broader medical community of New Orleans as well as its particular neighborhood. It sounds like there's just this amazing underground of people providing medical care, not only in high stress situations, but in more daily situations that's under the radar of most folks, it's not on the national news, it's not what people are aware of being in their communities, but odds are there are folks listening to this who don't know there's a free clinic in their community, and yet there is one. And there's, you know, very, very much this, um, this movement is not even the whole of the underground medical movement in the U.S. There are probably hundreds and hundreds of doctors and dentists and nurses providing care in their homes in their basements or in their garage or who knows what that that um are just you know not interested in in kind of the network and maybe the the attention that that would bring why is that necessary though why underground first off there's a lot of people who don't have health insurance so that's the that, that's the easy answer and the quick answer then the the more complex answer becomes well there are also people who don't want allopathic care they're just not interested. They're interested in, you know, what would broadly be termed alternative health, but maybe in many places is more traditional health. Um, there's also people who are unable to access conventional services because they're afraid of the legal repercussions. So there are plenty of people who are undocumented. There are people who live outside of the conventional economic system and are 
anxious about having their name be on paper. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons that people have to choose underground service providers as opposed to, you know, legislated and legal providers. It's also less expensive. Uh, I'm curious to know just what got you into this? What, what's your motivation? I mean, some of it's implied in the things you've said already, but on a personal level, why is this important to you? I, I hate the medical system that does not treat me as a human being and does not treat my friends as a human being, but rather treats us as statistics. I'm not a statistic. My friends are not statistics. Um, my patients are not statistics. And everyone deserves this. We all deserve to be, you know, it's not just to have health care that we have a right to, but I actually think that we have a right to health and that this component of access to health on the long-term basis is, is a really important way to frame some of the other struggles that are ongoing related to global warming or environmental pollution. Um, when Fukushima is spewing cesium and other forms of radioactivity all over the earth, do any of us really have an opportunity to be healthy? Is that even possible? And so not only do I provide care at on the street in friendly situations, but it's also important to go to these protests and support people who are struggling to, to change those things because I view them as integrally related to my well-being. Thank you. Yeah. If you are interested in getting trained to be a street medic, if you would like to develop or add to your medical skills, because really these are great skills for anyone to have. You never know when you might need them. You can hunt around. You can check out your local info shop or just ask around and see if there are any folks doing street medic trainings in your town. Here's a fun song from Little Feet, the rock and roll doctor. After this, we will hear from one of Brian's students. I'm Paradigms on WBKM. There was a woman in Georgia didn't feel just right. She had fever all day and chills at night. Now things got worse, yes, a serious fine. Times like this, it takes a man of a style like you to not often find a doctor of the heart and a doctor of the mind. If you like a country with a book, you be with a man to me.
Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Love that lol, George. That is from Electrif Lycanthrope, which is sort of a bootleg live little feat from way, way back in the early 70s. Great, great stuff. Let's hear from one of Brian's students now. So uh, what's your name? Emily. Emily. And what brought you to the street medic training? Well, my friend had organized it and told me about it. And I'd previously been thinking about ways to access such a training. So I was really stoked when she had actually made it happen. So I went. Why do you want to know these skills? Because they're super useful in a lot of different situations, particularly in the context of an action. It was really important to me to have the specific first aid and other skills to be able to help people in those situations. What kinds of uh, actions have you been at? Some like larger and more liberal actions, and then some other more radical actions where there was more direct confrontation with police. Is there any particular aspect of being a street medic or learning these skills that you think is most important for you? I don't mean so much in terms of a particular technique, but... Mm -hmm. Mostly in um, maintaining or like knowing more how to manage these skills and use these skills with the energy in a protest. We learned a lot about how to use preventative medicine and intervene before people got hurt and to calm people down before um, bad things happened or things that would um, would hinder the, the message or the cause we were trying to further at the action. And being able to diffuse a potentially dangerous situation is like something that is super valuable in a lot of different situations as well. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important for people to know about street medics, about this training, about any of this? Street medics don't just help people at protests. We, we learned first aid skills that are applicable in a ton of different situations and could be super helpful in a disaster, even just if something happens in your mundane life. For example, the person who organized the training saw an accident and held C-spine until the paramedics got there the other day. So even, you know, a week after the training, we're already putting those skills into practice in our everyday lives. Very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very cool to know that the training Brian gave has already been put to use uh, Emily's friend holding C-spine for someone waiting for the emergency medical team to arrive. These are the kinds of things that can happen. And when we all have some kind of basic medical skills, it makes everybody safer and uh, increases all of our chances of dealing with health crises that may happen unexpectedly more successfully. So I think it's pretty exciting. What if everyone knew how to provide medical care? Imagine that. We're going to hear a couple of tracks of music right now, and then I'll be back to talk about Jamaica. Here's a piece called The Reiki Practitioner.
called slow burn the band is the medics and before that we heard the reiki practitioner from jonathan saraga quintet and now i'd like to talk to you about my trip to jamaica i went to jamaica for two weeks for the second part of january to visit prophet ashante and his partner maya who are friends who have been on paradigms friends of paradigms prophet is an amazing guy he's in his early 40s He's a nanny maroon, and I'm not going to explain that because it's an in-depth explanation, but you can Google it. And he's also a well-trained herbalist, bush doctor. So I went to see them, partly because they're my friends, and also who doesn't want to go somewhere warm in the middle of winter when you live in Vermont, but also for some health treatment, because I have some health issues that I wanted to treat outside of the Western medical paradigm, which hasn't really been working for me. So I went and stayed with them, and Prophet provided me with Roots Tonic. He's been studying and refining his Roots Tonic recipe for decades, and usually you take a little in the morning and a little at night, but since I was having an acute issue, I started just drinking the Roots many times a day in large amounts. You can't overdose on this stuff because it's not toxic. Tastes great. And what I found was that after a couple of weeks of really drinking a lot of roots, um, I stopped taking the pharmaceutical I had been taking for 
a digestive problem for reflux. As of today, it's been over two weeks since I've taken that pharmaceutical, and I'm not having the problematic symptoms that were causing me to take it in the first place. So I'm hoping that means I can be off this pharmaceutical forever. I'm not suggesting that everybody drop their pharmaceuticals and take just Roots Tonic, but it's good to know that there are ways to approach our health issues outside of the pharmaceutical paradigm, and sometimes it works. Maybe a lot it would work. I, I can't speak for anyone else. So that's part of what happened on my trip. Another thing that happened is that Prophet introduced me to Jamaican food, uh, partly because he just wanted to share his culture with me, but also because these are really healthy things to eat. So I learned about a lot of ground food that Jamaicans eat, different kinds of tubers. We went out in the bush behind where Prophet and Maya live and dug cassava, which is actually the root of a tree. And you dig this tree up, and then you peel the root, and you soak it, and you grate it, and you can make flour with it, you can make cakes with it that you fry, you can make desserts with it. Tapioca is made from cassava starch. Jamaica has got all these amazing plants growing that provide food from below the ground, and then, of course, there's all the fruit that you would think of when you think of a tropical island. We had fresh banana, pineapple, mango, papaya. A number of things were not in season, uh, but we had aki, which is a vegetable that grows on a tree that is like scrambled eggs. If you've never had it, check it out. You probably can't get it, but you can at least learn about it, or you could go to Jamaica and have it. The Jamaican national dish is aki and salt fish. So Prophet prepared all these Jamaican foods for me over the period of the two weeks, and it was great. Some of it I loved, some of it I didn't love, but it was really fun to try new things and to learn about these things. So that was a really fun part of my trip to Jamaica, was all the different foods. Let's hear a little music, and then I'll tell you some more about Jamaica. Here's a song you might recognize covered by Alpha Blondie. Hot as 
branches for trees Hot air for a cold breeze Cold comfort for change And did you exchange I walk on a part in the wall For a lead role in a cage that uh, Prophet and Maya and I talked about while I was in Jamaica was how many people we know who live in other places that would benefit by visiting this beautiful island and taking the roots and eating the ground food and having the relaxation of being there. Now, that being said, let's get real. This is an island in the Caribbean. The society there is still very much a product of colonialism. There was slavery. There was conquest. African slaves were brought to Jamaica and used to grow cane. Jamaica's independence is within the last century from the British Empire. So there's a whole lot of history that is still present. Western industrial modern society is very much present in Jamaica. Obviously cars and electricity and all that stuff. And some of what industrial culture brings is not great like all the violence on television and in film. 
the drug running that happened in the Caribbean. Jamaica's not an easy place. Going there for vacation is one thing, but living there and trying to make a living is not easy. The schools are apparently really good, and the kids are very bright. I did watch their high school sort of college bowl academic challenge TV show, and these kids are really smart. But in order to go to school, you've got to have the uniform, and you've got to have the right shoes, and those things cost a lot. So not all the kids get to go to school because they don't all have the right clothes. And as we know, education is really a key to changing one's life. So that's a challenge there. Um, as with most countries, there's been corruption in government. So that means there's graft. That means that some of the resources that are supposed to trickle down to the people don't, and they end up in private people's pockets. That happens in pretty much every country, uh, certainly. So that's difficult. But one of the things I found was that the corruption in Jamaica is sort of more blatant. In a way, I want to say more upfront. Uh, we went to the beach to hang out, and there are Jamaicans selling things because, you, you know, you do what you can to make a living, and there are people selling things on the beach, clothes, food, you know, baked goods, their own CD that they made, great musicians walking around. So that's all going on. And so is the incidence of bakshish. We saw the police officers coming and collecting their take. And, uh, you know, so the corruption is very direct, whereas in the United States, we pretend the corruption's not happening and it's sort of not out in the open, even though we know it is going on. So I thought that was interesting to see how direct the corruption is and up front. When you're a, a white person visiting a place with a history of colonialism, if you have any awareness at all, you notice your own whiteness, if it were, your own cultural baggage being part of the lineage of the oppressors. I didn't do it. I don't feel guilty, but I am aware that being there as a North American, even as a North American who doesn't make a lot of money by North American standards, I was wealthy in Jamaica. So visiting another culture with such a powerful history, if you're open to it, you can learn a lot about the place and the people and the culture, and also about yourself and your place in the world. It's pretty interesting to travel, and I, I really recommend it if you can do it. And you don't have to be rich to travel. You can find ways to travel without spending tons of money. One way being, if you have friends somewhere that you can stay with, you can avoid the whole tourist hotel thing, and that way actually get to see more of the place. Often when people stay in resorts, they don't really experience the culture of the place they're visiting. So that's a little taste of my time in Jamaica, obviously just a little taste. Let's hear a little more music. We're going to hear something from our friends the Uprising Roots from Kingston, Jamaica. And then we're going to hear a song from our next guest, Emily Baker. And then we'll be back with the first part of my conversation with Emily. Here is Positive from the Uprising Roots.
song is called Wait For You. It's from Emily Baker's first CD, House of Cards. I really like the music, and we're going to now meet Emily. Emily Baker, welcome to Paradigms. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Really excited to be uh, talking to you. Well, good. I'm glad to talk with you, too. I've, I've gotten to listen to some of your music, 
Sure. And I really enjoyed it. And I want to yeah. just ask you how you got started in this and what your inspirations are and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Lovely. So how long have you been playing music? Um, I started doing in this kind of format, I, I guess about six years ago. I went to music college and I always thought I would play or write songs for other people and be part of that kind of scene. But I just felt like I had to get up and start performing as well and try and find my own voice in that. So I decided one day, okay, bite the bullet and go for it. So that was about six years ago. So, yeah, about that long. What was it like for you? I'm curious because you decided you needed to perform. Did you feel like you had permission inside? Was that a, a journey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the thing. I um, spent a long time giving myself a very hard time about what it was that um, constituted a good performer or, or, or having the right voice for that, uh, for being, oh, I don't know, being, you know, a pop star in inverted commas, you know, like what constituted that. And I felt like I didn't constitute that. So, yeah, it was very much about giving permission. How did you do it? How did you decompress yourself so where you got to accept your performance? Oh, God, that's a good question. I think I, um, I think you reach a point in your life <laughs> where if you don't do it, you start losing it and start wondering what on earth the point is <laughs> in being on the planet if you don't start doing things that you think that you should do, that you want to share. So, yeah. That's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> I think uh, so often in the world we see people sort of living gray, repetitive lives, but deep inside everyone there's got to be something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how did you, uh, so you went to college, you learned this, you found that you needed to do this. Yeah. How, how did you then get to the point where you're actually out there, you're doing it, you've got a CD? What were the steps you took? I gigged a lot, um, so I did more and more of that, and I, um, it's a necessary evil to go to London and do that, and I found a gig that I really loved doing, and that was um, a repeat, if ever I had to do a gig in London, that would be it, that would be the place, and the girl who ran the gig put me up for a songwriting award, which somehow, magically, I won, which was wonderful. And that, I, I won some money with that, which meant that I could make my first album. I guess that was the, the moment at which it became a bit more of a tactile thing as opposed to, you know, wandering around without a product is a problem, I guess. It defines it a bit more strongly, doesn't it, I guess? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, people want something they can grab onto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I think that was the thing. That was the uh, getting it right making connections with people and it becoming a solid physical product. Um, I, kind of, I don't like the word product, actually. Collection of songs up until that point. It meant that I could collect those songs together and then I was able, you're then able to move on from that or, or not, <laughs> depending on how it goes. It's hard to do creative work when you're struggling to get food. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Emily Baker with her... Uh new album out all at sea and here is a track called run the stone skills the street 
that was Run, the first track from Emily Baker's new CD, All at Sea. And now let's hear the second part of my conversation with musician and songwriter Emily Baker. I want to change gears and ask you kind of what your thoughts are about the world these days. What do you see? What do you feel about it? What are your hopes and fears? Yeah, well, I think we're in a, it's a difficult time for everybody. I think... Um... God, what a wonderful question. Again, I think, well, actually, for me at the moment, um, I'm dealing with how to cope in the world by going back into education. So I'm a master's degree student at Sussex University doing a gender and media course, but looking at the way in which representations of, of masculinity and femi- femininity in, in in the pop music sphere, I guess. But, you know, that's my little world. That's what I kind of contribute to the... <laughs> that's where I kind of... I am creatively. But um, I think that that has its own politic in, you know, a, a desire for equality, you know, a real desire for equality based on gender. But, you know, that goes with a, with a huge depth of, of real love of people and wanting to understand people better. Because I think once we start understanding a bit each other a bit better... Surely the world's got to be a better place then, isn't it? I hope. No, we hope so. And I think yeah. I think the idea of studying and exposing, in a way, the gender issues in pop music is incredibly significant because, yeah. you know, I my brain is full of music throughout my life. There isn't even room for any new information. And a lot of those songs, if you really look at what they're saying, they're saying some pretty horrible things. Yeah, yeah. About sure. how we relate with each other and what we're willing to do or accept from others yeah yeah no I absolutely agree and I think um you know I mean for for me musically when I look back at my heroes you know when I look at uh, Joni Mitchell and and the kind of the aesthetic of of what she's making and this beautiful very very feminine sounding music if you can have such a thing but with such a inherently kind of powerful message as to what's going on behind it I, I can't just kind of write that off as oh isn't it beautiful? That's just not in my character. I was kind of I want to go. What is it that's going on with that? And and therefore you know what's that like thirty thirty odd years ago with if you look at her nineteen seventies output and then and then think about how that's being re, sort of consumed and redigested by by young singer songwriters coming up through the ranks today. I think it's I find that fascinating. But lots of people don't, but I do. <laughs> She's a great example of someone who was iconoclastic without being rejecting, in a way, yeah. of, of the dominant paradigm. For sure, yeah. And, and, and with that, yeah, that sort of femininity, if you will, in the music, a core of strength of her person that was beyond gender. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, I just think she's wonderful. Yeah. I'm a massive fan yeah. of her work. And... So I'm also curious to know what you're seeing in the world that gives you a sense of uh, inspiration or, or forward momentum? What what other kinds of projects or people's work turn you on? I guess there's two things really that I, I really, I really love the kind of organic, authentic, if you can call it that, that of, of like Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. I love that kind of, this kind of old fashioned relationship that they have in terms of their performance where, you know, it's not about, using a PA or plugging in, or if you have to plug in to make it sound as it should do, as it would have done years ago, because I find that really inspiring in terms of 
the things that we've picked up along the way in terms of technology that we've sort of naturalized in in the performance of music um and i love the way they strip it back and kind of rip up that rule book and yet take it back you know to to what music was like then and yet and then the other side of the scale i really love the friendships that i've formed through things like twitter and um, the way in which you can connect not only with with other musicians to collaborate, which is great, um, but also just to talk directly with people that really love your music. That's just been lovely. So this kind of, <laughs> yeah, the opposite ends of the scale, being more organic, but, but using technology to, to really communicate, I guess. The essence is the connecting. And so that that's yeah. great. I love it that Emily is really uh, connecting with and sort of hearkening back to the simpler music that she refers to. I think you can hear the difference between Run, which we just heard from Emily's new CD, All at Sea, and this next one we'll hear from her first CD, the title track, House of Cards. Here's Emily Baker. Oh mm-hmm. 
check out Emily's music. I've got a link to her website on my website, paradigms.bz, so you can check out both her CDs and learn about Emily. Here is the third and final part of my conversation with Emily Baker. In a way, this way of connecting with your audience through technology goes way, way, way back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then this thing happened in between where there was this huge separation between performer and audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's just a beautiful thing. And I, I kind of see the music industry sort of retrospectively grabbing, you know, the, the traditional music industry anyway, kind of retrospectively kind of grabbing back at this um, technology and kind of trying to jump on board, which I think that it's a, it's a lot better now than maybe it was a couple of years ago. Um, but... I just think, yeah, I think gaps are closing and I'm interested in those gaps closing. I'm just interested about, you know, I'll play to 10, 15 people in a house concert or, you know, and, I, and I'd prefer to do that than than play to some faceless entity, in you know, to hundreds and hundreds of people. For me, if, if anything grows, if it gets any bigger than it is at the moment, which on one hand I'd really like because I really like sharing that, um, but the difficulty of that will be sort of propagating the intimacy that I'm really enjoy so much with, with the house concert scene. Yep. So yeah, I love the intimacy of a, of a seeing somebody, you know, I did a house concert with some wonderful people down in, um, Sulphur, Louisiana, uh, over the summer and just sitting and watching my, you know, the host, Saren, while I was playing a song called run, which is the opening song on the, on the new record. And she's an English teacher, so we had she we had this connection about lyric writing. Obviously, immediately, she's just like that's the song. And to watch somebody in their rocking chair in a city in a place that you that you don't know anything about, but that you're making that connection and you're making them cry, I'd rather do that. <laughs> Maybe that's naive. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's very beautiful, actually, and it's humane. It's human. It's heart. You know. Yeah. And and, and of all places, Sulphur, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what a wonderful place that is, yeah. It's amazing. I spent some time in New Orleans after Katrina, so I got to explore the area a little bit. And it's it's a whole, it's a very different world than anywhere else I'd ever been. Yeah, I absolutely, and, and for me as well, you know, we did three, so like 4,000 miles in three weeks. And when we got there, I just thought, this is like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't like a, the English countryside no. at all. You know. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Some crazy stuff. Oh, so, wow. yeah, it was wonderful, wonderful place. And lovely people. 
Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would really like to make sure you get out there to people? I just want people to enjoy. Well, to, to have to take the time to listen, I'd really appreciate it. It's the most difficult thing in the world to to sometimes get people to open their ears up to something new. And I guess with this album, what I've tried to do is, having been really inspired by the Gillian Welch Dave Rawlings relationship, that's what this record is about. It's about cutting music back to what I hope to be an example of somebody that is. <laughs> almost obsessed with writing the perfect song in search of the perfect song and um that's what i've tried to figure out in this record i don't know whether i doubt we've got there but that's the point isn't it i guess yeah so. nice well yeah. i will share your obsession with my listeners <laughs> and uh and i am sure that they will love it that's wonderful thank i so appreciative thank you so much well, I enjoyed talking with Emily very much, and I'm enjoying her music, and I love getting to meet people who have this ethic about creativity that Emily has, and uh, it's very exciting and something that I think we can all embody if we want to, our own creativity. What, what would you make if you had permission, if you had time, or even if you just decided to take a little time? Ah, well... Amazingly, another hour and a half has passed, and we come to the end of another episode of Paradigms. A few things to mention. I'd like to welcome our new intern, Samantha Lubke. Samantha is a student at Linden State College in Lindenville, Vermont, and is helping me to get a bunch of things organized with Paradigms. And Samantha's going to be taking on the task of spreading the word and getting paradigms out there more, and also making contact with some more musicians and doing all kinds of helpful things. So, Samantha, welcome to Paradigms. It's a pleasure that you're here, and I'm looking forward to working with you. As always, Paradigms is archived at the Paradigms website, paradigms.bz, so you can find past episodes there, also in iTunes, for free under podcast. Paradigms does not receive any kind of Financial support, as you've noticed, there's no advertising. There is, however, a donate button at the Paradigms website. So if you feel so moved, if you like what you're hearing, please make a donation. That helps to keep me going. It helps to keep WBKM going. And it's much appreciated. So my name is Baruch. I will be back with another episode of Paradigms next week right here on WBKM.org. Hope you have a great week. I'm going to leave you with another song from Emily Baker's new CD, All at Sea, and this one is called Fire. See you next time on Paradigms on WBKM. Fire return too soon Swipe through the room Carving and burning all afternoon Takes me aside Whispers if you've got time It's ready to do or to die Till something subsides Fire I am on the run and it's my turn Fire You pull me like a river When you push away from me I know Adding fuel to the fires Like putting out a flame With a smoking gun There's a fire, there's a fire there's
troublesome flames suffice Or feigning surprise Throw away glances, hot sparks that fly Fire, where do I begin? When I'm a moth to the light you bring I got a new place to hide Till something subsides a fire I am on the run and it's my turn The fire You pull me like a river when you push away from me I know adding fuel to the fires They're putting out a flame with a smoking gun There's a fire, there's a fire, there's a fire Listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org.